week of November 14th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 562, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And on the strike lines, I'm Michael. Where is everybody? Wait a second. There is no strike. And even Kaiser Permanente will not be going on strike, which is a a big hospital network here in the U.S., for those who don't know. Uh, There was a big threat of a strike. Tens of thousands of nurses out on the street striking. And no, they're not going to go on strike. Neither, by the way, is IATSE. Great news, I guess. I'm ha- you know, enough members are happy with the contract that they're ready to avoid a strike. So that's great news in that terms. I hope they got a good enough stuff and they can build on it in the future. But yes, they ratified the contract. There will be no strike. So that's a, a, a relief in terms of just getting back to normal and having production move along. So that's great to hear, isn't it? And this is all the below the line. This is a contract for all the below the line. 60,000 workers below the line. So like mm-hmm. your gaffers, your grips, all those workers. And yet you uh, got cheated out of a job. And I feel I, bad. I did. I yet did. another I, job that was taken away from you. Yet another award that you so richly deserved. People's sexiest man alive is Paul Rudd. Not yeah. fair. Not fair. You know, you're bro. finally going to give it to a 50 year old and it ain't me. Okay. <laughs> so let's, this is ridiculous. I want to recount. I think that the election was stolen. Uh, yeah. With all that other, the big lie stuff that I can, uh, we rarely out. get justice, but every once in a while we do. Cause Brittany is free out of this grotesque conservatorship you know, from all the details. One hears it's just crazy nutty. She is now free of that. That's big worldwide news. I don't think it really affects people in the industry because very few people ever have anything this bizarre and controlling over their careers and their lives. But it's sure interesting. It makes you want to pay attention to your managers, your lawyers, your agents, everything you sign, what's going on, who are you working with and why, and are they competent and healthy and happy? Because this was not a woman who's been happy for years, and yet a lot of people did business with her. I don't know. If I heard all this going on over the last 10 years, I'd be like, are you happy? Do you want to be here? What's going on? You know, before I signed a big deal for you to tour with me or something. But, you know, that nightmare is over. I'm sure we'll be learning a lot more about it, won't we? Well, yeah, because the lawyer that she hired, at least to get her out of the conservancy, basically said, well, we would like to know where all this money that's been coming in. Uh, the conservator, of course, was her father and, and there was a manager. Uh, we want to know where all this money is going. Because we have no idea. We've never seen the books. So we're just going to sue for discovery. We just want to see it. And within like a week, the father said, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to petition to end the conservancy because I guess it was like, uh, oops, you're going to see how much money I've been siphoning off and paying myself. (laughs) Whoopsie daisy. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, weird things happen to me talking about no justice. Every time I publish an article, it is immediately copied and published on multiple other sites. Not because anything I write is you know, in demand, but just because it's all that stuff is automatically cut and pasted and copied onto other sites. Every once in a while, when you know, I'm trying to look up an article for, of anybody, I stumble across the, you know, a, a fake version of it on a website. Rolling Stone had a review of Bob Dylan's tour opening concert. Instead of getting to Rolling Stone when I typed in the review thing, I ended up on a site called the World News Era website. And with a new byline, sometimes they just have my name or whoever the writer's name on there. Other times they put on a new name, but word for word, the same article that was in the Rolling Stone uh, website, there it is on World News Era website. The worst thing is it was the top search result on Google and DuckDuckGo. So if you say, I want to read the Rolling Stone Bob Dylan tour opening review 
and, you know, November 2021, they don't take you first to Rolling Stone even. They take you to this fake website with ripped off journalism. That's just a broken, broken system. It's very frustrating, which is why you should go to our show notes and go to the link to my story about the 101 best mystery novels of all time. I did it for Parade Magazine. It was a lot of work. And hmm, like 20 of them I don't agree with because it wasn't all under my editorial control. And I haven't even read enough to actually make a list like this. But a lot of the books I'm happy with. So if you love mysteries or you're just looking for a great gift idea, you know, and you want to read the article... Go to our link and follow it directly because if you search Michael Gilt's 101 Best Mysteries, it's probably like been copied and recopied 50 times by now. You have well, nothing to say to that. No, I'm surprised that you you know you were doing an article for Parade Magazine on mystery novels. Uh, that's well, a mystery to me as to why <laughs> they cover books. You know, so yeah, they just yeah. they cover books all the time. They're doing all these lists. Everybody wants lists. It generates attention and excitement. You know, 101 best showbiz sandbox episodes of all time. You know, people love lists and people love to hear what we're going to talk about. What's on the show this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got some big box office numbers. James Bond is about to pass Fast and Furious 9. So it's F9, as the, the kids like to call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's about to pass that movie as the biggest movie of the pandemic era. Wait, wait, wait. Actually, this just didn't strike that. Make that the biggest Hollywood movie of the pandemic era. Because China's The Battle of Lake Shenzhen is the biggest movie of the pandemic era and the biggest Chinese movie of all time, depending on whose numbers you believe. Not much happened, by the way. Uh, in the wake of the Astroworld concert tragedy, except for a bunch of lawsuits. So, so far, lawsuits, yes, you know, safety revisions to come. Uh, however, the pandemic is still causing havoc on the sets of movies, streaming shows, and even the National Football League, the NFL. On Inside Baseball, we'll have the latest on streaming. Who's big in Japan? Ooh, I would like to know that. Why Apple loves Tom Hanks and the reason streamers don't want to share any data. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we're going to turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz. First, I'm going to ask him a question, but then he's going to fill us in on last week's box office. All right. So this this line about being big in Japan, is that a reference to the Tom Waits song, I'm Big in Japan? No, that's Tom Waits song is a reference to a cliche. You know, we're big in Japan. So he's making a play off an old cliche. That's all I was doing, but it's an ah, actual okay. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to Comscore in our show notes. We also pull info from everybody else. Comscore, by the way, has gone back to just covering the weekend grosses. For a while there, the grosses were so low, they covered the entire week's grosses. Go back to that. Do like we do, because there's no reason to ignore Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and often Thursday grosses. That's a lot of money. Look at the Eternals. I should say Eternals. The comic book miniseries is called The Eternals. The movie is called Eternals, I think. It made $119 million around the world this week. It's at $280 million worldwide. Wouldn't it be funny if this movie hit $600 million? All the angst and, oh, it didn't get great reviews. You know, let's see where it ends up. That's what I say. But Eternals is chugging along. It had a good second weekend. You might have expected a hard fall because poor reviews and not great audience numbers, but it's still doing all right. And little two, recognition. I mean, let's face it. Eternals is not a huge franchise, even in the oh, comic right. book world. Just like Iron Man and Doctor Strange and some but of the Shang-Chi. This was even, so, this was even like no. lesser known. 
uh, you know, I don't know. I don't really Shang-Chi, know Iron Man, yeah. Shang-Chi, uh, you know, Doctor Strange. I don't really know this stuff. There's been the Guardians of the Galaxy. These are not properties. And that's full credit to Marvel that they have turned all of these into event movies. Stuff that only comic books geeks knew. And now we all know them. Eternals made $120 million worldwide. And number two around the world, Bond. James Bond. No Time to Die made $42 million. It's at $709 million worldwide. It's also available on premium video on demand for 20 bucks now. But F9, Fast and Furious 9, that's at $721 million. That's the biggest Hollywood movie in the pandemic era. So with another $12 million, probably by the, before even next weekend, perhaps, No Time to Die will be the top grossing Hollywood movie of the pandemic era. But the top grossing movie overall in the pandemic era is, in fact, The Battle at Lake Chongjin. That made another $14 million this year. It's at... This year? You mean this week? This week. I'm sorry. It's now at... Hmm. I'm not sure. It's made a lot of money. It's probably the highest grossing Chinese-made film of all time. It's certainly the highest grossing Chinese-made film of the pandemic era. It has... A probably passed or is about to pass or has passed Wolf Warrior 2, which was the previous record holder for a Chinese-made film. That movie made $874 million. But how much has the Battle of Lake Chongjin made? Well, get this. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, it's made $858 million. And that's often really updated right away. Comscore says it's at 868. Box Office Mojo says it's at 874. The Numbers says it's at 881. And The Hollywood Reporter says 882. And Deadline says $884 million. I think that's a record. Nobody agrees how much this movie has made. It's uh, Some of them just hadn't been updated yet, but it's crazy to see on a Sunday or Monday that much disparity between what everyone uh, thinks it's at. But there's no doubt about it. This movie is passing or has passed or will pass Wolf Warrior 2 to be the biggest Chinese film of all time. So that's so you're saying cool. it's, it's not going to be Dune? Uh, no, not yet. Dune did fine in, Ch- in China. But there's a thing for you. Not one Hollywood movie has an upcoming release date in the Middle Kingdom. That's, you know, they're shutting down theaters. They're dominating with Chinese movies. They don't want to give any good slots to Hollywood films. In fact, Jungle Cruise, that's towards the bottom of our list. Jungle Cruise was finally allowed to open in China long after piracy would be a problem. They barely had a chance to promote it. It opened up to $3 million in China, to which Disney says, thanks for nothing, China. So, you know, you make a movie, you try to bend over backwards to China. You don't know if you're going to get a release date or if they're going to even bother to make sure your movie is released before it's available on piracy, you know, all over the place. So maybe you shouldn't be spending so much time thinking about China. Maybe that's just not a bet you want to make. If, you know, one movie they don't like and they won't show anything else you made for a year, maybe it's not worth the angst. Well, I think uh, Hollywood is coming to to that realization. That said, uh, over the weekend, I thought this was a little funny anecdote. I was cleaning up the apps on my phone as I am, want to do from time to time, and I opened up WeChat, which is uh, it's kind of like WhatsApp, but for it's heavily used in in China, so it's a texting and, and you know calling app uh, used in uh, you know texting Asia. and calling and purchasing items. I mean, there's lots of things you can add into WeChat. It's like a very multi-purpose. It's yes. like Facebook plus chat plus purchasing plus you know you you know it's digital currency. It's really got a yeah. lot of packed in. Uh, you know, there are, uh, on billboards you'll see uh, you know the ads have the WeChat 
you know, logo on it. Of course, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I hadn't opened it up in a while. And I guess the last time I opened it up, I, I subscribed to a bunch of news feeds and uh, they they had uh, an automatic translation uh, tool in cool. WeChat now, which uh, so I, I, I translated this one news story from an entertainment news source. Uh, and it was about exactly what you're talking about, Michael. It was about Jungle Cruise. And they were talking about how uh, Dwayne Johnson, uh, is so popular in China. In fact, they started calling him Stone Johnson. And I was like, Stone Johnson? Where did they get Stone Johnson? And I went, oh, you know what? This is a translation. So it's The Rock. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. That is funny. I'm going to call him The Stone from now on. Hey, Dwayne, give me a call. So Eternals <laughs> made $120 million. No Time to Die made $42 million and passed F9. Be Somebody in China. This is a period mystery film. It had a very strong opening. The same week they finally let Jungle Cruise open up. That should have been a popular film, should have done well. Opened to nothing with $3 million. And the audience scores were pretty good. At, alternatively, Be Somebody, this Chinese period mystery, had all the opportunity to promote itself and to plan its release and get people hyped up. It opened to $22 million. Number four is Clifford the Big Red Dog. That's available day and date on Paramount+, Plus, but in theaters it made $22 million. Deadline says, slapping down the people who say, oh, see, look, your hybrid releases can work. You can have stuff available day and date in the home and open in theaters. Like, no, A, pandemic. B, how much more would this movie have made if it wasn't available on Paramount Plus day and day? And wait until Paramount Plus is in a lot more homes, and then you'll see a lot bigger impact on the box office. So don't draw any big conclusions from this. You know, I'm, there's a uh, I've I've heard Paramount Plus referred to as the streaming network nobody can find. I haven't. What do you mean? What's the, you download it like anybody else? How is how is it harder to find than anything else? I think it was more meant as a joke when it was said. I, I don't. I don't get it. It's a perfect. I get it. It's perfectly good. If you want to watch, you know. Yeah, I think Yellowstone is actually on Peacock. Actually, even though it's a Paramount yes. thing. But anyway. So, oh my God, Yellowstone. That's like the biggest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Every white man over fifty loves Yellowstone. I'd be like, how big is that show doing? I've never seen a show this popular. Everybody I know is watching it. It's like, well, yes, you're over fifty and you're white. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. Meanwhile, wh whether it's Yellowstone or Squid Game, I'm saying, wait, what are those? <laughs> Isn't Yellowstone a park? Is Squid uh, Game a new board game that I haven't played yet? Or is it a card game like poker? But for the big red dog made 22 million. Dune, also available on HBO Max, made 21 million. That's at $350 million worldwide. Hey, maybe it'll get to 450. That'd be pretty darn good. Really, 500 million would be just great. I don't think it's going to get there. I don't think it has any big territories left. But, uh, you know, it's doing all right. Obviously, enough to get a green light for the sequel, or I well, should think say, about it. It probably two. lost forty million. Yeah, and it probably lost forty million dollars to to piracy and to forty million. On H you, no, you, HBO you know, Max. You can't put a number on that. It could be a hundred million. Could be two hundred million if oh, they'd true. allowed a yeah. proper release date. Yeah, and especially the reason why Clifford the Big Red Dog is even dumber. Family films are made to be rewatched a thousand times. If the family goes to see Clifford the Big Red Dog in a movie theater, they're going to come home and watch it twenty more times anyway. That's what kids do. So there's no reason to choke off the opportunity for theatrical on a family film. That's kind of the dumbest movie. Same kind of thing with Dune. That's a movie people are going to watch over and over again and want to see the visuals and embrace. It's a big, you know, it makes no sense to release it in the home at the same time. Something like, I don't know, you know, uh, Be Somebody, uh, you know, or, 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 or a period mystery or... Uh, 
last night in Soho. I don't know. It's a horror film, an art film. Maybe that you know makes more sense. But something like Dune or Clifford, that that just boggles the mind. But Venom, Let There Be Carnage, that made $17 million. That's at just under $450 million worldwide. Big success story. Then The Battle of Lake Chongjin made $14 million. And then Into India, where two movies are both at $28 million. They both made about $8 million this week. One is the Tamil film Unate. I hope I'm saying that right. That made $8 million. And Suryavanshi, Suryavanshi, the Hindi film released for the Festival of Diwali, that made $8 million. So both of those movies doing well over the holiday season, though we don't know their budgets. If you do, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Call us. Leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Maybe we'll even play your voicemail and respond to it right here on the show. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Yeah, we do miss movies because if it's not on ComScore and we don't f- catch it in a roundup, I mean, I do check the India charts. I need to start checking the J- Japan charts. Uh, there must be a chart telling us what new movies are open in Japan, but I can't do that for every country. But there's a movie that came out in Japan last week called And the Baton Was Handed Over. It's some definite weepy. I don't know what's going on, but there's classical music and somebody dies or something because there's a lot of weeping in this movie. Not good stuff, but this week it only made $1 million. It seems to be in Japan only, but its total is $8 million. So it opened up last week. We missed it. We apologize for that. Uh, Well, I got to tell you, whether it's Japan, which has some of the strongest movies around like France and, mm -hmm. and India now, I mean, how can we see these movies? Everybody's complaining. Oh, there's not enough Hollywood. The studios aren't releasing enough content. You know what? Send them to us. We want to see these movies. I would love to go see the Battle at Lake Shangjin just to see what it's about. Yeah. Now, and, and the 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 I can't pronounce the name Anati. I I'd like to see that movie. How, how do I see these movies? The, well, you know, Anati is playing in American theaters. It's in the top twenty right now. So it's what? Being, yes. Okay, yes. I'm looking it up right now. And, and so, Labyrinth of so Cinema, so of course, in Japan. Well, that's an art film that's, you know, three hours long, and that's not going to play everywhere. That's an art house film. It got being released in, in theaters only in a few major cities, of course. Right, right. That's, that's what I'm pointing out. That's, that's not a movie that you're going to get a wide release on. No, but still, it got released. Yes, it did. Uh, but a lot of uh, films from India get released in the U.S., even here in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Anita, getting back to the charts, this is another Chinese film, or I should say Hong Kong film, I think. It's a biopic about the Kanto pop star who tragically died at the age of 40 from surgical cancer. Great figure. The movie made $7 million. Uh, is it ch- playing in Japan or just Hong Kong? Because she's a bit of a controversial figure. She very much supported the, the patriots who protested during Tiananmen Square. And when those two people were being rounded up, she helped quietly support you know, whisking them out of the country. It was some elaborate project to get people out of the country uh, before they were jailed forever. And so she's, she's a hero of mine. Interesting life and very, very big figure. She's known as the daughter of Hong Kong. Huge star, both you know, as a music star and as an actress. She had, had acted in like 40 films over 20 years. So two movies a year. Interesting. So I haven't seen that film, but Ron's going, let's go down. The French Dispatch is still chugging along. That's made $26 million worldwide. It just made another $6 million this week. That's the budget of the film. If it can double that budget, that's great news in this day and age, but it may even chug along and get to triple. I would love to see it. And it hasn't opened up here yet. 
last well, night. And, and so- this just goes to show you, by the way, mm-hmm. okay, because mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do want to point out you are right. Uh, both Big Brother, which is what the Anati uh, is actually means, Big Brother, uh, and Anita have showtimes here in Los Angeles. I mean, granted. Right. That's they great. are in in areas that I would need to drive to, but that is called Los Angeles anyway. Uh, so yeah, and it looks like they are in more places than that. So uh, you know, I could actually go see some of these movies, and maybe I should. Well, let's segue into that. Uh, there's Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh film, opened up to about two million dollars. Spencer, the Diana film, made another four million dollars worldwide. That's at six million dollars and counting. Edgar Wright is always good for cult film status. His horror period time travel movie last night in Soho that's probably tapped out at about seventeen million dollars because Halloween is over. Though that movie should transcend Halloween. But there's a, a lot of good movies playing, and I know you've been active. You've been going to the AFI Film Festival and Doc NYC. How the heck do you do that red eye shuttle back and forth? You know, it was very difficult this year. I had to hire a private plane uh, <laughs> because I live in L- no. Uh, so yeah, I'm seeing a bunch of movies. Uh, Doc NYC big documentary festival here in the U.S. every year. Uh, They round up a bunch of films that were in, uh, you know, whether they were Sundance or South by South. And originals, and they have some originals. And and then they have a ton, yeah, a ton of originals. Uh, One of which was a film called Nutuk, which was a, a, it's a town, actually, a settlement in in a remote area of Alaska, which is right on this river that they ha- now have to move the entire, uh, uh, you know, tribe basically of Yupik native people to a new place, uh, nine miles up river, climate which change? is on higher the climate, crisis? climate, climate change. And oh, wow. literally as they're making this film over four years, uh, you could see the land moving further and closer and closer. Like houses are like, <laughs> falling into the what it looks like an ocean and uh, as the movie is going on they're like we're gonna have to move nine miles make that 15 wait no maybe 20 miles maybe 100 i mean i'm sure they were saying actually that's a little too go let's get farther away <laughs> you know they had to constantly change where they were moving too well and and as somebody pointed out uh in the film that one of the tribal people who came back after serving in the military mm-hmm. uh that that the yupik uh tribes were pretty much nomadic but then once Alaska became a part of the... They weren't allowed to keep wandering the, around, yeah. They, they said, look, you guys have to settle down and send your kids to school. So the reason that Newtok in the first place became a settlement is because of the school. The school was put there. The U.S. put the school there. Everybody went there. Meanwhile, the streets are muddy because of, there's water everywhere all the time. And then Congress won't, you know, they won't, they don't have enough money from Congress to actually move 300 people upriver it's it was a fascinating documentary well sure and you know i think it's great that doc nyc allowed you to attend that festival digitally i think most festivals should do that i know con won't but i think it's a great thing new york film for everybody if you can do that digital portal it allows critics who can't afford to come there it allows critics who are physically challenged to come there it allows people to you know reach diverse audiences that you can't reach otherwise you just can't fit that many people in the room Obviously, you're not going to give it to thousands of journalists, but there's no reason people with good credits shouldn't be able to get access to those festivals. Are you attending AFI digitally as well? 
Uh, yes, although I could have gone in person. It's just right, a matter of- That's great. Of no, that's great. They gave you that option. It's quicker. It's easier. You don't have to get in your car and drive over there. I love seeing movies in a big theater, but when you're a critic or when you're trying to do it for work, it's great to have that option. You also saw a movie by Megan Milan, the Academy Award-winning director of The Lost Boys of Sedan. Uh, her documentary, uh, what's it about? It's about war and people who've been displaced. What's going on there? It's actually one of these doc. I was not looking for called to simple, simple as water. Correct. Simple as water. And it basically is these vignettes, but they all tie together in some way. Syrian refugees spread throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So one in Greece whose husband is in Germany. So they follow her. Then eventually at the end, they get to him and then they reunite them. But are they reunited? And it's all about what happened after that Syrian war. What happened to the families that remained? What happened to the families that made it to the U.S.? And it's not just hard. It's not just hard to pick up and move somewhere else. You'll never see the people who were your neighbors and friends again in many cases, if if not all cases. You're completely dislocated. You know, it's just completely. It's so hard to imagine. You can't go back home again because the people aren't there and everybody has gone to different countries. The sense of dislocation must be overwhelming. At least the people in New Talk, cold comfort, but at least they'll try to keep that town a little bit together. Uh, it's even worse for these Syrian refugees. But I'm also interested in this movie from Matthew Heinemann. He did Cartel Land, which is a good doc. And he did a new documentary called The First Wave about the COVID-19 and healthcare workers, all specifically looking at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, New York. Um, they're battling the virus. Uh, was that just like, oh my God, I don't want to watch this right now. Did you learn anything or what was it like? So, yeah, I mean, so at this point, I have seen at least five of these films, uh, and I probably should have looked them all up because... uh, That's okay. They're all telling similar stories all over the world. Yeah, well, and and so uh, In the Same Breath, I believe, was one of them, uh, and it was... Yeah, I think that was an HBO film that was done by... Tell us about this one, The First Wave. Uh, well, the media, the only reason I mentioned uh, it, it, it's Nanfu Wang. She did uh, One Child Nation. It's, that's on HBO Max. So is Simple as Water. This one, the first wave is a National Geographic documentary. So that'll and, be on the Discovery. <laughs> yeah, I don't. HBO yeah. Max thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And no, no, was, National Geographic is Disney Plus. Yeah. And then there were 79 days that was, uh, they all, you're beginning to see a bunch of tropes emerge from you know well, they're similar stories of course yes uh but it was fascinating i thought it could have gone even a little bit further in showing how the medical they, they tried to cover so much but just how the medical how it impacted the doctors and how psychologically how they it's broke like, it's like down being in a war zone it's like being in right. a war zone yeah and at one point there was uh one of the lead doctors that sh- the, the document uh, filmmakers followed is breaking down and like just of course talking to the camera and just saying I can't take it anymore and I guess somebody a nurse or one of her colleagues came by and just gently pulled her on her arm and just slowly you know led her away saying okay you've got it now it's time like no more for the camera <laughs> like, right, right. was smart enough to but it was unbelievable like the the you know all that stuff is unbelievable when you actually see the number of cases Per day, the number of people dying per day. Mm-hmm. It's pretty remarkable mm-hmm. that in 2019, 78 people per day died of the flu in the United States. Right. People by the thousands were dying and there was nothing they could do about it. And they followed some of the patients and just how debilitating. I mean, 78 this was. people a day at this hospital? 
uh, 78 people per day in the country in 2019 were dying of the flu, which I thought to be completely a little low. I thought so too, until I actually looked it up. Uh, and it was, you know, on average, by the way. So yes, it might've been 200 people in one day in February. And then we had like a thousand people dying. You know, yeah. All right. Um, so, but a lot of people died far more than normal. I'm not sure about those numbers, but that's not important. Uh, it's amazing what you can learn from those documentaries. I know you're looking forward to seeing India Sweets and Spices, which is coming out soon. And at Metrograph, you're a big fan of All is Forgiven, directed by Mia Hansen Love. Not a very big commercial release originally. It was at some film festivals, but that's being shown in some theaters in the U.S. So when people say there are no movies, there's movies out there. There's Belfast, there's revivals. Things are happening. There's good movies to see if you head to the theaters. And if you're watching those docs, there's a lot to learn. Is there anything to learn from the Astroworld tragedy? Absolutely. This is the concert tragedy. What city was it in Texas? Was it Houston, Houston, Texas? That's right. Uh, A disaster, a nightmare. Uh, I'm not trying to give Travis Scott a pass, but I, I felt like pretty quickly, like, ah, he's done stuff. You know, he's been kind of a jerk in the past and gotten in trouble for saying, hey, my Rangers, everybody, encouraging people to jump off a balcony, crazy, reckless, stupid stuff that he shouldn't have done. But I haven't heard one word of anything that he did at this concert that encouraged reckless behavior. So, you know, maybe he's learned his lesson or whatever. But when people point out that stuff from the past, I'm saying, well, okay, but from what I've heard, he didn't do anything wrong here. Uh, I mean, in terms of onstage behavior or encouraging people to climb fences or break through barriers and stuff like that. He has done stuff like that in the past. And you can say, well, he created a reckless atmosphere that continued to this day. But at least at this concert, he was not an instigator of anything like that. As far as I know, I'm sure we will learn stuff and hopefully learn lessons. So some of the mistakes we already know don't happen again. But one well, thing well, that- <laughs> on that note, uh, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, he was one of the promoters, I believe, in which case it was his. No, it's his thing. Yeah, it's, his, okay. it's all he's responsible in terms of overall on that level. But he yeah. wasn't on the stage going jump, no. jump or break down the fence, you know, which no, is what and, people are immediately trying to paint him as this lunatic who was, you know, encouraging stuff like that. And when you look at the footage of the people entering, just like clamoring and pushing over one well, another. Because they had they had stuff that you could get at a special shops that were going to sell out. And this, the way they did the feed in was not good. The way they didn't have another concert playing to overlap the main concert. We've already learned some stuff that isn't normally done at other festivals that they did, which was a mistake. But what surprised well, all the fence me, jumpers, the right? fence jumpers. Well, are, that were, happens were at all... every festival in the world and it's wrong. Yeah. And, you know, yes. That's why they I had tell... increased fencing from the last two years ago. They increased the fencing, they increased security. They had a lot more people. You know, I'm not, again, I'm not defending. I'm just saying they learned that lesson before. They tried to fix it this time. Clearly they didn't do enough. Well, you know, as you know, I go to Coachella quite often. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, they're supposed to have 120,000 people over three days. Uh 40 a day? Yeah, it was like, it's like, like 50 or 60 a day. Yeah. Well, that would be 150,000 or 180,000. Well, well, but it overlaps. So it's like, you know, like some days people don't come back. So they'll come one day and then like 10,000 of those people won't come back. It's like 120,000 unique people basically. Oh, well that's well, okay, well that's different. It could be 120,000 people every day. It no, could be no, you all three that. days. Well, it could be. But so that's I think not it's a, eight, yeah. That's not a helpful number. How many people are okay. there at any one day? That's what you want to know. I think it's eight, 80,000 total. Okay. 80,000 max in a day and that's yeah, that's peak. And what they realized was it was on by Sunday, so many people that year had jumped the fence and like broken it, not broken in, but mm-hmm. like snuck in. Yeah. And I remember that year thinking, "Oh my god." And I think if you go back and listen to our 
show yeah, up. Yeah, you said this is not safe. This is not good. And, and, the, and the next year, and they admitted, they said, look, we dodged a huge bullet. But next year, oh, you think you're going to jump the fence? Guess what you're going to run into? Four more fences. And Fest- sure enough. Festivals are not great. Festivals are pretty unsafe. I've never been to one. It's hard to do it right or well. And if people are going to behave like idiots, there's not a lot you can do. If people start sh- you know, knocking fences over, it's not like you're going to build a castle. You know, with four to, you know, you have to depend on people behaving essentially like, you know, intelligent people and at Coachella or elsewhere, they don't always right. do that. So, yeah, that's a big problem with festivals and maybe they'll be rethinking festivals in general. Uh, well, they're I have clearly to say, keep Co- having them because that's where you make a lot of money. And Coachella did it right. They, they put people up in, you know, little perches. They had one fence after another. You could not, I'm sure you can sneak in, but, but not it's easy. not as easy. Yeah. Not good. Well, uh, the one thing that surprised me was the sheriff who knew Travis Scott, who was involved in the preparation, who talked to the people beforehand, who said I was went in and said, I'm, not, I'm worried about security. He also made a point of saying he doesn't have the power to shut down the festival. And I'm like, really? You're the sheriff of Houston or whatever the designation may be or the county. Like you're a police officer there on the scene in charge of all the police. And you go up to them and say, this isn't safe. You need to shut it down now. They're going to say, F off, go away. I mean, I find that hard to believe. And if not, why doesn't, why don't they, why doesn't the, I mean, obviously you don't want a deputy sheriff saying Beyonce's got to stop performing. You know, you have to have the right chain of command. You have the right figure of authority, but surely somebody in local police who's at a festival and thinks people are dying or getting injured and we need to stop has the ability to say that. If not, they sure as heck should have, shouldn't they? Yeah, well, that it's been pointed out. Uh, there was a big expose on NPR this past week about that very issue, about how it, uh, the chain of command is purposefully kept vague because uh, nobody wants to be responsible. Right, exactly. Nobody and wants to say, oh, I got to send 60,000 people home. Uh, right. so. and, now, and, now, and you also don't want somebody pressuring people for a kickback or they don't like right. the music saying, well, we're shutting it down. I understand, but it's, it's people's health and safety. Somebody has to be responsible. If that person recklessly just shuts it down because they don't like you, well, now there should be a fallout from that. But the important thing is that somebody's in charge of safety and you don't have the venue saying, well, and the police said it was fine. You know, they didn't stop us. And the police saying we couldn't do anything. That's that's crazy. So something better needs to happen there. Certainly the rules are getting tighter for the pandemic. We're having more and more TV shows and movies and issues with uh, people not being vaccinated. General Hospital, uh, a cast member, Ingo Rademacher, if I'm saying his name right, 25 years he's been on the show. He has been pushing back against COVID protocols and the vax requirement. Then he started mocking transgender people, which his transgender fellow cast member didn't take too nicely. And now he's been kicked out of the show. And the reason we thought at first was, oh, that comment he made. But no, it turns out he's refusing to get vaccinated. And they're like, those are the requirements. We can't have you on set in this zone if you are not vaccinated. So he's out. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Big movie. In August, Letitia Wright, the star of the film, was injured. We're not sure how badly she was injured, but they shot everything else that they could. They're ready to come back to her, but she's not ready yet physically from what we know. But there are also suggestions that she's not vaccinated properly because she made some public comments that make you think she doesn't want to get vaccinated. That's a problem. Mighty Ducks. Oh, my God. They're messing with our family franchises. Emilio Estevez. This is really a shame. Uh, His brother, Charlie Sheen's a nut, but his dad is a good guy. And I would hope Emilio was, too. 
but he refuses to get vaccinated as required. And he then says, I'm not vaccination. I, you're like, yeah, as soon as you say I'm not anti-vaccination, you are. <laughs> as soon as you say that, I'm not anti-vaccination, but, you know, he's, I'm not anti-vaccination, I'm anti-bullying. Oh, God. The poor guy had COVID. He had long-haul COVID. He talks on and on about how he went to great lengths to avoid people. He drove to a set rather than fly because he wanted to avoid people. He's been wearing masks. He's all for that. He's been doing other stuff. He'll do anything, apparently, except get vaccinated. So. It's hard to understand where their head does, is. Does at. he not take the flu shot? Because if he takes the flu shot, then you just get the J&J. It's the same thing. What do you mean it's the same thing? He doesn't want to take the vaccination. He refuses. Okay. It's not that he's confused about what's available. He's saying, okay. I won't take I guess it. he's, I, so then he doesn't get the flu shot either. Okay. I don't know that. Maybe he has, maybe he's, he might be just saying, I don't like this vaccination because he's looked it up, Googled it online and listened to Joe Rogan and Aaron Rodgers. So who the hell knows? Yeah. You know, I love that Terry Bradshaw called out uh, Aaron Rodgers and slapped him down. And Aaron Rodgers was like, oh, the woke mob is coming. like, Terry Bradshaw, really? <laughs> NFL or Terry? Not exactly the woke mob. <laughs> you know, come on there, buddy. <laughs> but it's a big mess, and these problems aren't going away. Uh, you had the CJ Marquis. What's your newsletter called? The CJ Marquis. The CJ Marquis. Uh, great thing. There's you were saying. You people were saying in there. Patrick von Sikowski, obviously saying, look. We don't like talking about this, but there's going to be more shutdowns. So it's already started in Europe at the, you know, vaccine, not vaccinations, but deaths and hospitalizations are on the rise all throughout Europe. Country by country, there's variations, but it's getting really bad. Certain countries have already shut back down again or done lockdowns. And he's like, it's coming. And you know what? If it's coming to Europe, it's coming to the U.S. too. So God help us all get vaccinated. Well, you know, it's actually uh, there's. You know, it happened in Asia, right? And it's still going on in Asia. And eventually it spreads to Europe. And eventually out of Europe, it always spreads to the U.S. And if you look over the Plane past, like, <laughs> yeah, over the last seven days, infection, the infection rate plateaued at around 70,000, 72,000 per day. And now it's up to around like 82, 83,000 per day on average. So it is going up. Not It, it, it doesn't go up to 400,000 per day the way it was at one point, and right. I'm exaggerating. But but yeah, in, in the EU, uh, it's, you know, there are, you know, 24,000 deaths per week. Well, that's an average of 2,000 deaths per day. We're not at that level now. However, we usually are around three to four weeks behind the EU. Guess what? We're now in that zone. So talk to me the end of December, and we'll see where we're at. Yeah, it's not looking good though, isn't it? No. Um, it's a and if people don't get nah, I'm just gonna cue you up, right? You know, big deal, big whoop. If people don't get vaccinated, it's a big deal. <laughs> oh, okay. Then yeah, if that's a big deal, then it must be time for big deal or big whoop. Our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or figure out whether they're just overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. Uh, and actually, we didn't have to do anything for this. We just told somebody what we wanted, and then they created it out of thin air because Peter Jackson's Weta is selling off its digital tools. So if we pay for access to their effects, their special effects, we can create a horde of orcs to listen to our podcast and rate and review it on iTunes the way you guys should be. Now, here's the thing. Even if that's a pipe dream, <laughs> Okay. Weta is selling off its tools to a company called Unity, which is buying the tools and tech the company employed on, well, you know, Lord of the Rings, a little small franchise, and Planet of the Apes franchise, and many other films. Hundreds of employees will be making the move to Unity as well. However, 
Jackson will remain the primary owner of Weta FX, as the company is known, and still employ thousands of people. In fact, thousands of people is the population of New Zealand. Everybody in New Zealand will be working for Peter Jackson from now on. <laughs> uh, th these are the jokes, people. I got nothing else. Anyway, uh, here's the thing. Weta FX is not giving away the secret sauce because it's just not, it's not just the tools. It's how creatively you use them. It's the people. They say Weta is Jimi Hendrix, and now they're selling, well, guitars to others who can play those guitars too, just like Jimi Hendrix, kind of. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Right. They're saying this is a tool. We use it really well. So we're not worried about having giving other people access to these tools. They're not all Jimi Hendrix. We think we do a great job here and we don't need to keep this secret anymore. This is interesting. I've been reading some books about artificial intelligence and how you should think of it not as this thing that massive multinational corporations can create with gazillions of dollars. It's going to become more like a utility, like electricity or water. Everyone will have access to it, by which we mean companies, small, medium, mid-sized schools. You don't have to have gazillions of dollars to set it up. You can just rent it out via the cloud and have access to it for the purposes that you need. It'll cost money, but you know, not like it would be if you had to do it from scratch. And so it's going to be a utility. And the same way they're talking about these Weta tools as being a utility in the cloud. So maybe small movies. Now, obviously, they can't do Lord of the Ring level effects, but smaller movies can access these tools and use them on a per case basis and get the bang for their buck that they could never afford otherwise. So that's kind of cool. You won't need to be a huge multinational movie studio in order to pull this off. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, years ago when I worked for DTS Digital Cinema, they had a subsidiary called Lowry Digital and they would basically refurbish movies. They took a lot of movies that were in standard def and moved them to high def for their Blu-ray releases. Mm -hmm. uh, they did all the Disney, you know, re uh, renovation renovations. No, they, you know, basically touched them up and they had all these algorithms and they put it through a server farm and it took 600 computers to render you know, the, the, each frame individually. But then they also had like a, like three dozen people in a back room that were going frame by frame and looking at each individual frame and touching up what didn't get picked up by the, the AI and the algorithms. And there were people who were good at it. And there were people who were not very good at it. Yeah. And, and there was, I remember talking to the manager once and said, you know, that guy, if he's not stoned, he's he's horrible at this job. I just have to let him. <laughs> if, just have to if, let him. if he's not the rock. <laughs> yeah. Got to let him get stoned to come to work. By the way, I'm not sure what numbers you were looking at, but even as recently as mid-October, um, there were a thousand people. There were a thousand deaths a day in the U.S. involving COVID-19. A uh, thousand deaths a day. You go back to mid-September, uh, you're looking at two thousand deaths a day nationally. So 78 isn't quite right. Um, it just depends on how you define it and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of people were dying, and hospitals were overwhelmed, and doctors who might deal with death and dying all their time were seeing deaths at extraordinary high levels, uh, which was like being in a war zone. So it really hard to deal with, you have to say. No matter what, we understand that. They were seeing overwhelming numbers. And when you deal with it today, that was in the first wave. Now, when you deal with it, you have the frustration of knowing most of those people could be alive if they just gotten the shot. Right. And it's uh, that was the flu in 2019, the average. So that wasn't COVID. It was flu 2019. Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. Well, no, that, no, 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 no. It's even far less than that. It wasn't flu in, oh, in 2019. Um, yes, because 2020, almost nobody died from the flu. Correct. Correct. Right. Yes. So why were you talking about the flu numbers?
Well, just to, to show like the disparity of like, okay, you got like what, 200 people a day in February dying of the flu throughout the country. And now you have 2000 people a day, 10 times oh, that amount dying. I did dying. not understand what you were trying to say there. There you go. Okay. Anyway, uh, hopefully you'll understand uh, what our next Sesame Street Hi. character has to say. You know, our next story is brought to us by the letter J. Yes, well, oh, Sesame Street. It's like you're, you're looking for trouble, Sesame Street. First, Big Bird, he got his COVID vaccine, okay? And you know how, how much vaccine you need for a Big Bird? Oh, my okay? God, that's a big needle. Yeah, well, now Big Bird has been getting vaccinations for decades, and this is only the most recent time they've shown a Muppet needing to go to the doctor and get a jab, but explaining why and how it will feel still it's political, right? I mean, come on. That's 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 what everybody's <laughs> going to say. Going. And now the show has added its first Asian-American puppet, to which I said, wait, those puppets have nationalities? Uh, but meet Ji Yong. Ji uh, Yong, I think. A Korean-American yeah, girl. Ji Yong. Ji Yong. Uh, she is a Korean-American girl who is joining Oscar the Grouch, who we all know is from New York, okay? Everybody knows that. Yeah. Uh, Bert and Ernie, who are from, I don't know, uh, the village. Alice, the village. The village. <laughs> Elmo, who is from Mars. I don't know. Hi. Where is Yeah. And uh, and all the rest of them. Uh, she likes, young. Yeah. Well, she likes to play the electric guitar and skateboard. Wait, she has legs? How is that possible? Anyway. Big Do you ever watch the show? They have black kids. They have kids, Hispanic, Hispanic and Latin kids. Of course, the puppets are all nationalities. But I am surprised, I must say, that this is the first Asian-American Muppet that they've had. I did not know that. So that's a little surprise to me. And I don't know whether it should be called Muppets or Puppets because not all the puppets on Sesame Street are Muppets, I think. I don't know about that. Like Big Bird, I don't think he's a Muppet. I think he's a puppet, but I don't know about that. I'll have to look that up. But 7% of the population in America is Asian American. And of course, it's very diverse. You have Pacific Islanders, you have people from Japan and China and Korea, uh, all, you know, Thailand, vastly different people with vastly different cultures and backgrounds and personalities. And so they wanted to make sure they had a very specific person. This is a Korean American. She was born here, Chi Young, and she's got an all American kid, like loves to play the guitar and skateboard. So very cool to see. And you know what? It's really good. You want to be popular and commercial. This is a nonprofit company, of course, behind Sesame Street. But you want to reach your audience. It helps to have your shows look like your audience. It's not just nice to have characters of color on your TV shows and sitcoms and movies. It's a good idea because a lot of the country and a lot of the world looks just like that. So this is just good business. You know, and, and, and frankly, I think skateboarding was a part of the Olympics this year. Right? It was indeed. And, uh, and so you don't have to be American to skateboard because I think uh, it was a, a Japan won oh, yeah. the skateboard and Brazil won, uh, I, I think. Uh, One of the events. Uh, yeah. 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 So uh, in fact, it, it pays uh, not to be uh, American if you want to win gold, apparently. <laughs> you have to be Japanese or Australian, as I'm looking up now. Uh, but uh, OK, so this next one, I knew you would love this story because remember when Spotify opened its pocketbook and paid everybody but us? Remember that? I do. Yeah. Well, they paid big bucks for Joe Rogan and bought its way into the world of podcasting. It worked. In fact, more and more Spotify users listen to podcasts. And on Spotify, uh, every time they listen to a podcast, Spotify keeps a listener happy and doesn't have to pay royalties the way they do when you listen to an album. Now they'd like to keep you listening to, uh, you know, audiobooks. That's right. Audiobooks. Spotify just opened up its pocketbook again and brought, brought, they purchased. 
Findaway is the name of the company. It's a company that works in the audiobook space, like Overdrive for libraries. Findaway seems to be a big backroom provider for all sorts of people in the audiobook space, like Apple. Also, like Amazon, it helps people who have who self-publish audiobooks reach actual readers, or in this case, listeners of books. All oh, right. And yeah. now, and now, Spotify hopes you'll uh, you know listen to an audiobook. I mean, really, do you have to listen to Adele's new album ten thousand times? Uh, uh, oh, you do. Oh, okay. Damn it. Anyway, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a, it's a good first step. I mean, the catalog that Findaway seems to have are a lot of self-published books. They don't own libraries of audiobooks like from big name people that you would recognize as far as I can tell, like, you know, Penguin Random House or Simon & Schuster or people like that. This is a company that mostly seems to have access to, you know, self-published books by podcasters who want to have their book come out and, you know, reach the world. The brave podcaster Wait. jumped into the fray, you know. So go go go, go back there. Podcasters uh-huh. can write books. Sure, absolutely. But I think I got to I, I got to go. Yeah. So I think this is helping them with technology as more so than the, you know, a flood of 100,000 ebooks or, or audiobooks by people no one has ever heard of. I mean, that is a good business from Amazon. I think getting good quality audiobooks for indie self-publishers is a higher bar and a little bit more money to get a really good well-read self-published book. And somehow I think the standards are going to have to be a little higher than they would be for ebooks. You know, you like a mystery, you maybe take whatever. Ah, oh, that's all right. But hearing an audio version of it kind of would emphasize, I think, the weakness of a book, unless you had a really good reader. But I don't know. I was trying to find out info about Findaway, and you go to Wikipedia. Nope, they're not on there. It defaults to an album by Silverchair called Frog Stomp. I'm like, what? Did I mistype it? No, no. Frog Stomp has a closing song called Findaway. Oh, and number two choice is a song by Christian contemporary star Amy Grant. She had a song called Find a Way, which I imagine led you right to Jesus. But, um, you know, Find a Way, when I looked them up and found them, they seem to be a backroom company. So I don't think their catalog is particularly valuable. So it just is more of a sign to me that Spotify is serious and maybe this gives them some backroom tech that they want as well. But, uh, you know, I need to learn. I don't, I don't, I wasn't familiar with them. So, you know, I'll pay attention to see what they're doing. Well, and and I'm going to call an audible here. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, because I put this in and totally uh, forgot to call you and tell you that, uh, this is a story about the star Wars franchise, uh, because Disney had a, an earnings call over the weekend, uh, or, Last week, I should say. And they kind of announced in that that uh, the, the... They were delaying Rogue, the Patty Jenkins flick. Yeah, Rogue Squadron, which Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman, uh, she directed Wonder Woman. That, uh, and she she's, I guess, dropping out of that. And it's delayed indefinitely. Indefinitely? Uh, no. Indef- no, no, yeah, no. They it, gave it a... No, I, I did not hear that. They just moved the release date. I don't believe it was uh, delayed indefinitely. I thought they just changed the release date because she has a conflict with another movie that they weren't ready to film. And so it was just pushed back. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe they were playing games and being coy, but I, I did not catch that. Well, apparently Matt Bellany, uh, of, well, now he's with Puck. He used to be with the, you know, the head of the Hollywood Reporter, the, the executive editor what's, of the Hollywood what's, Reporter. What's, what's Puck? I've never heard of that. It's a newsletter. It's a bunch of people who got together and they publish newsletters. Uh, Substack you know, thing. Yeah, but they're just themselves. They're, you know, right. it's like, yeah. Uh, and so he's saying it's time to take Star Wars movies away from Kathy Kennedy. And he's basically saying, look, 
she, you know, nobody can get along with her creatively. Like she fires people on solo, the, the, you know, Phil Lord and Chris Miller fires them in the middle of the film, brings in Ron Howard, uh, the, the director of, uh, what was that rogue one? I think, uh, you know, basically has to, they have to hire another director to finish the film. And now, and now, uh, Patty Jenkins is walking away. She just can't get, uh, along with some of these creatives. That, and that, they, they think she's a disaster. Have they seen the well, grosses of the movies that have come out? Well, and they, exactly. And she's also in charge of the Mandalorian. And right. the upcoming oh, book by the way, he, he, do, he does give credit to her for that. He said, look, you know, if you're going to take away for the fact that there were these movies and there was no overarching uh, like storyline the way there was with Marvel and Kevin Feige, then you know what? Give her credit for the Mandalorian, which does work. And those, that TV show did work. Well, what about credit for the... Uh the one billion dollars of the rise of Skywalker, the one point three billion for the the uh, Star Wars Episode Eight, the one billion for Rogue One, a one off movie with nobody in it that takes place between you know two movies, uh, the two billion dollars of the Force Awakens, the billion dollars. You know, I mean, you know, they've made a lot of money off the movies that she has overseen. Solo, a Star Wars story, is the only one to gross less than a billion dollars. You 400 know? million and it's the only right it was, it was a flop but then they also yeah. have done the mandalorian and they've done you know they've got the animated shows on tv i don't creatively like the work she's doing but i don't think you can point to her as a disaster unless you care about creatives and you want a good movie that's a different issue from oh is she doing a good job as far as corporate's concerned as far as well, that, that is exactly what he's saying yeah. that is exactly what you what you just said is well, exactly but what his story saying. says remove her well, right, because he's saying in the long run, having better movies and actually have a thought through storyline that has spinoffs and and different characters. Well, he wants that it to be can, all linked together like Marvel. Well, that one that uh, can survive the test of time uh, rather than make six billion dollars in the space of, you know, seven years, which good. That's great. You made six billion dollars. But what are you going to do 30 years from now when nobody wants to see those movies anymore because they're not very good? Well, and yet uh, the the Fast and Furious movies continue, and the Transformers movies continue. Uh, I agree creatively, um, but uh, and I have to say I've looked it up, and it does seem like they have now. They said it was being delayed, but in the days since that caller meeting, they have removed the film from their calendar entirely. So, uh, as you say, he tells us in his article, Matt Belloni, that. Uh, she just couldn't come to a script agreement with them. And that seems to be the problem with everyone. You know, they got Phil right. Lord and Miller making a movie. And they're like, no, we're not happy with the tone. So, yeah, no, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting issue. But you got to give her credit for making them a gazillion dollars. And will that theme park ever click and, you know, become popular? I haven't heard a word about how the Star Wars site is doing at Disney. But that's an interesting question as well. And she's not in well, charge of that, of course, but that no. helps long term. Being, being a, having a popular site. And you were right about the, the Olympic gold. Uh, one Australian and three Japanese kids snagged gold when it came to uh, skateboarding. skateboarding. But you got By Brazil. kids, you mean, you, you literally mean 14 years Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. But you do have Brazil, the U.S., uh, Great Britain, uh, you know, all snagging you know, bronze and silver. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of kids from all over the world love skateboarding. Yes, uh, I used to love skateboarding, but then I got older and I fell off my skateboard once Ow. or twice and went, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is a sport for younger folks. <laughs> and maybe then Inside he Baseball is for the people who really know the biz. It's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now tell me, Sperling, do you go home and I go, 
that's my job. Why are you saying that? That's my job. Does it irk no, you? <laughs> not, no, I'm kind of like, hey, you're going to talk about how, uh, no, actually it, it, it lightens my load, so to speak. But that said, it's the networks versus streamers and streamers versus streamers. And now you're, we're going to bundle them all up and, and find out what the net, the big networks, what they are telling us, because, you know, we always say, what will it mean for our listeners? Well, sure. We're, we're going to end up someplace. You'll see where we're going to end up in Disneyland, in Disney World. Not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> I love it when you riff. You know, we've got some streaming news, and as Europe heads toward more lockdowns, God help us all, streaming is clearly where it's at right now. It's safe. You don't need to wear a mask. And the news is Netflix, not so big in Japan. Mogul John Malone has an amusing, global warming-savvy way of framing the decline of traditional TV. Apple loves Tom Hanks, and Disney Plus is not so happy. Oh, and Correct. the major networks are trying to beat streaming at their own game. And how are they trying to do that? Why don't you, we start there? We'll oh. start with, I'll we'll scroll, start at the beginning. I'll scroll, start at the end, you mean? I will scroll oh. down there. So, uh, oh, oh, trying to beat them at their own game. That's the second to last story. Okay, um, here we go. So, the uh, big networks, and c starting with CBS, have decided they like that idea of touting how many minutes people spend watching the franchise. You know, every week we talk about three billion minutes of Squid Game reviewed this week, right? I Meaning every episode of Squid Game, everybody who watched every minute, you add it all up, and that's how many minutes were streamed of that property. Now, of course, an eight-episode brand-new series like Foundation isn't the same as, you know, hundreds of episodes of Seinfeld. So you always got to keep that in mind, but it is useful to say, all right, how many minutes do people spend watching this stuff? And Squid Game has been hugely popular. CBS said, oh yeah? So when they were talking, they said, well, we can do that. Guess what? From September 20th, from the start of the fall TV season to November 7th, or about six weeks of programming, 167 billion minutes of CBS programming has been streamed and consumed by people, meaning they watch it on the network, they watch it on their DVR, they watch it on CBS All Access, whatever the hell that's called now. Paramount, what's it called? Paramount Plus? Pa Paramount Plus. Thank you. Uh, so 167 billion minutes of CBS. But not all on one show. No, on that's on their whole programming. But at yeah, CBS yeah. over the first six weeks of the season, they say, how you like that? NBC, the number is 131 billion minutes. That's a lot of minutes. Fox, 109 billion minutes. ABC, 99 billion minutes. Now, the top, if you add up the top 10 of streaming alone for the first last six weeks of the fall season, you get to about 104 billion minutes. However, those are just the 10 most popular programs on streaming. Of course, Netflix has hundreds, if not Thousands, certainly thousands of episodes of different shows. So they've got a lot more than their top 10. So that's not quite the same. But look at Squid Game. 10.4 billion minutes of Squid Game have been watched during that time span of the first six weeks of the season, as far as we know. Equivalently, The Price is Right, 8.6 billion minutes. The Young and the Restless, 7.8 billion minutes. Colbert, over a six week period, 4.8 billion minutes. Now, Look at that for a second. Squid Game, 10 billion minutes, but Price is Right. That daily show, 8 billion minutes. Like, that's I, a lot of power. I, that's a lot of eyeball. Like, holy moly, really? The Young and the Restless, who the hell watches soaps anymore? 7.8 billion minutes of The Young and the Restless were consumed. And Colbert, this is why the late night people make a lot of money between their videos. I assume they're counting that. 
video plays of their content. Plus, of course, the show airing and on DVRs and on demand on Paramount Plus and all that. 4.8 billion minutes of Colbert was consumed. That's that's kind of interesting, I think. Well, even if they're wrong by half, okay? Even well, they're if, not like, wrong about they're... how much people are watching their own stuff. No, but what I mean is like, so you mentioned, uh, you know, YouTube, right? Or, you know, the-, the, the Well, clips. that would only add to their popularity. Right, right. Oh, you're saying that they didn't count YouTube yeah, in this? Yeah, I'm assuming they counted the clips that they place on social media like YouTube and, you know, 100 million views for some comedy sketch by Colbert or 5 million views. I assume they're adding that up and including those eyeballs during the past six weeks as well. Yeah, maybe. I Maybe, would imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a huge part of it. But so you know what? You know, that's it. Disney now has a market cap of $295 billion, about the same as Netflix, which is trading at an insane multiple, the same as Netflix. But unlike Netflix, it's not adding subscribers very quickly. Only 2 million people, 2.1 million people were added to the Disney Plus subscriber base last quarter when they expected to add about 9 million, or at least the prognosticators said that. So ironically, the rest of Disney's business improved out of the pandemic, but Wall Street didn't care. This means subscriptions alone are driving the Disney stock price. That's- uh, I like, what, I, I like again, what Matt Bellany had to say. He said, you know, basically he said, look, you know, Disney kind of won during the pandemic because even though their parks were closed, their hotels were closed, their businesses- We've got were- Disney Plus. We, they kept saying, we've got Disney Plus, we're, we're like a tech company. So you should value us by multiples of our of what we're actually making, kind of like you do with Netflix. Well, Wall Street said, okay, but then when you only add 2 million instead of 9 million, you pay for you're going to be punished for it. So, so uh, Matt Bellany said, if subs don't rebound and the stock continues to slide, Bob Chapek, the new CEO, is going to start throwing everything but the Seven Dwarfs kitchen sink at Disney Plus. Basically, what they were trying to—he was trying to point out here—is if you're living you know, and dying, by the, right? That means more stuff that should be going theatrical will be sacrificed to the gods of streaming. Correct, and that's a that big mistake exactly because you can make—you could have made a billion dollars after off Shang Chi, and instead you made four hundred million dollars. Uh, I'm not saying they made the wrong choice for that particular movie because of the pandemic and everything, but going down the road. I want to see, I want to make 800 million, 600 million, a billion dollars off these movies. Why, you know, cut off all that money when that just means that movie's going to be all the more popular when you bring it to a streaming site? So I think it's a bad mistake. And certainly Chapek mentioned, you know, being flexible about, about windowing. So that means, yeah, yeah, whatever, theatrical. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's the deal. Uh, you remember when we were like, please stop using the word unprecedented. We don't want to hear the word <laughs> unprecedented anymore. F- the, the flexibility and flexible. You have to be flexible. That is the unprecedented. That word has become the unprecedented word. Meaning don't for, ask us to commit to anything. For, for, for media companies now. They're like, but you got to be flexible. It's like, okay, you're telling us we're not going to see it in movie theaters. Okay. <laughs> well, but, yeah. But now here's the thing. I don't know whether Disney Plus is available in Japan. I believe it is. But Netflix is available in Japan. But you're saying, hey, it doesn't matter because Netflix, not so big in Japan. Yeah, they had a big story about trumpeting all their original programming that they were doing in Japan. Very impressive stuff. But a story about that pointed out Amazon is the biggest streamer in Japan. They have 15 million users and they account for 26% of all streaming time. Netflix is fourth behind Amazon, TV, and Abima, A-B-E-M-A. Wow. So I'm not sure what programming is lacking for Amazon, uh, for, uh, for lacking for Netflix. I'm not sure what programming Amazon has that is so popular, but that's interesting to know that, you know, this is a country by country, territory by territory battle. That's why every week 
Netflix is saying we're doing all this Korean programming. And the next week, Disney Plus says we're making originals in Latin America. You know, everybody wants to have original programming all over the world because they want eyeballs all over the world. You know, I just had a brilliant idea, and I'm sure this idea has already been taken, number Mm -hmm. one. And number two, probably already exists, uh, and I just don't know about it. And that is, you know, so many movies come out in Korea and Japan. We always talk about them, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, we rarely see them, and when we do, they're only playing at a few theaters. You know, BritBox is a great service. You can watch a lot of British films. Well, why not? Well, there are services know. for content from Japan and from other countries available in the U.S. right now. Um, but Darn it. I'm going to yeah, go. And there's also a lot more content that is available more widely in theaters. We're seeing in the top 10, the anime movie from Japan. We see a lot yeah. more Korean content getting shown all over the country. And by the way, the number one country in the world, movie, right? TV show, pardon me. The number one TV show in the world and the U.S. right now is Squid Game. So no, this is not, a lot of that content is getting seen in the U.S. We just won the Oscar for Korea. So I don't think there's a problem about Korean visibility in North America. It's big. It's only going to get bigger. And that's a good thing. The more we recognize the talent and the great content being made in Spain and Brazil and Korea and everywhere, uh, the better off the world is. But I like mogul John Malone, of course. He is bullish on the merger of Warner Brothers and Discovery. We had a lot of earnings calls, and so a lot of people were weighing in about what's going on with the streamers and this and that and the other thing. He says, okay, this merger, it's challenging. All right. But then he said, the ice cube of traditional linear TV is slowly melting. So with the ice cube of traditional linear TV slowly melting, companies must also support traditional linear TV or the historical infrastructure as it transitions. So you want to be very friendly and supporting of your existing distribution. So he's saying, look, don't cut off the kneecaps of traditional TV, which he might've also said about traditional theatrical, by the way, but he didn't. But you know, when you got HBO max doing it, don't cut off the knees of traditional theatrical because it's not going anywhere. There's a lot of money to be made there. And it's a really important part of your business right now. And you, if there is a transition or a change, you want to make it as pain-free as possible for everyone because it's in your best interest. So he's saying that about Warner Bros and discovery, but Disney should be listening as well. So should HBO Max. So should everybody. But I just love the idea of the ice cube of traditional linear TV. Where did he come up with that? But it's melting. There's a polar bear and he's getting smaller and smaller. He's like, oh, I'm running out of ice cube. I just thought it was a bizarre image, but I agree with what he says. Well, broadcast and linear television is not dead. However, it's melting. Wilbur Smith, it's melting. But Wilbur Smith... Unlike oh, no, 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 we can't. We got two things we mentioned already. Apple loves Tom Hanks. Why? It says Finch is much oh. bigger than Greyhound, right? Apple had the Tom Hanks movie Greyhound, and it was huge. And they said it was great. It was our biggest movie ever. Now they've released Finch, and they say Finch starring Tom Hanks is even bigger than Greyhound on Apple+. Plus. We're like, well, how much? What do you tell us? And like, well, it's it's bigger, <laughs> which just yeah. goes to show they do not want to share streaming data. Hollywood Reporter has a great story about this. I'll be quick. We have a link to it in our show notes. Why streamers are stalling on sharing data. Excuse number one detailed in the story. Well, we all have different subscriber bases. You can't compare Apple Plus to Netflix to Disney Plus to Paramount. We're all at different stages. So it would be just too confusing and misleading to to reveal those numbers because you wouldn't know how to understand them. Excuse number two. Well, who knows what data is most important? What numbers matter most? We're trying to figure that out. To which we say, well, you could start by telling us how many people have watched every episode of a show or a series, you know, like the whole thing, not a minute of it, but the whole thing. And they're like, no, no, no. 
and they have long, complicated stories. But I can tell you the real reason streamers are stalling on sharing data. They don't have to. That's why. As soon as Nielsen or some third-party company can accurately measure the data, then and only then will these companies be more forthcoming with the media and especially with talent. Remember, they hid the Blu-ray, DVD grosses, and rental grosses on VHS. They still do. They never reported the gross dollars on a regular basis that they made in home entertainment, even though at one point they were making more money on home entertainment than at the box office. It's huge money. They hide international. The best, the best part about that story yeah. is when, when DVDs and Blu-rays tanked, yeah. they would tell people, we can't make as many movies, talent. We right. can't. You know, we don't have that DVD. It's, it's not like we got DVD money floating around anymore, right. to, which, to which all of the talent. Well, and how the, much and money? The, they were like, wait, what? Wait. <laughs> You made money on that? Because for years, you were saying you were making no money. If they so, could hide box office grosses, they would. They certainly hide the net profits whenever possible through financial shenanigans. And they hide international TV sales, the money that shows like The Blacklist and CSI make overseas, which is a huge amount of money. How much they make franchising local versions of Law & Order. They never talk about that stuff or international sales at all. Certainly not in real dollar terms. So when they can hide money, they will. And the same is true for streaming. It's nothing new under the sun. If they can keep it from you, they will. And they'll say, oh, we got a great big hit. And when you say, well, I like more money, they say, well, it's not that big a hit. <laughs> <laughs> and then people died. Okay. So yeah, we were going to talk about the best-selling author, Wilbur Smith, who died at the age of 88. You've never heard South of South Africa. You've never, never heard, of heard of him. Of course no. not. This is a guy over the years when I was covering books, they would every once in a while try to push him and make him a big name in America. I'm like, who? And then you read 100 million copies and this and that. And you're like, what? Never heard of him. Well, he was a big hit all over the world, just not in the US. He died at the age of 88 in his home in South Africa. He was born in Zambia. He lived in South Africa. He wrote manly adventure stories that made him a world famous author, if never terribly famous in the US. He sold, they say lately, about 140 million copies of his books. He's one of those authors I've been aware of for many years, but he just never clicked here. He's sort of a, he was a big game hunter, a pilot, a scuba diver, a man's man in the John Huston Ernest Hemingway role. One series of books covered the Courtney's, this family that began with his first book in 1964 and ran through 2019. He wrote the latest story about this family over the decades and centuries. 55 years after the series began, it may be the longest running series in terms of years in publishing history. If you know one better, tell me about it. I'd love to hear about it. In fact, his novels were originally banned in South Africa, and he left Rhodesia because he disagreed with the white rulers at the time. So uh, interesting guy, big life. Boy, he was married a lot of times. Boy, he had ugly breakups. Interesting fellow. You might want to check out his bio in our show notes, but I know you were a fan of Dean Stockwell, weren't you? Yes, I was. And and just to, to go back to, to our friend Wilbur Smith, so 55 years, I, I believe that even uh, kind of goes past uh, the Updike uh, rabbit. Oh, fat, uh, oh, oh, by yeah. far. Yeah, no, that was like 10 yeah. or 15 year span for those books. It's not in the terms of the years they cover, but in the terms of the publishing years, like how many, how long it ran from the first book published to the last book. Yeah, and I think Updike, it was more than 15 years. I think it was 30, but not not nearly as, not 55. That's that's saying something. Yeah. 1960 to 1990, 30 years. I just got it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I wow. was looking it up. Good job. Yeah, 30 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, if anybody knows stuck. one better, tell us. Yes, you can write to it. No, just kidding. I'm not going to repeat that right now, but wait until the end of the show, I will. Uh, so, okay, Dean Stockwell, he, he is nominated for Oscars. Nominated for Emmys, child actor makes good. 
He was one of the very few child actors that actually wound up making something of himself. And this guy was in everything. Yeah, and he almost quit. The, he quit the business like three times, including one time he got a real estate license. Like, I'm out of here. His dad provided the voice of Prince Charming in Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This is the second time we've had a reference to that movie recently. Remember, we had the woman who worked on the film as an, uh, and working in the animation department who just recently died. And there's Dean Stockwell's dad providing the voice of Prince Charming. Okay, actually, it was the third, because if you remember, just moments ago, I quoted Matt Bellany saying that Bob Chapek- Well, yes, you represent him, but I mean in terms of a person who had died and stuff. Yes, no, oh, you know, okay, of course, yes, we yes, mentioned yes. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs every day. Dean Stockwell was a hit from the start. He appeared on Broadway when he was just seven years old. Immediately got picked up more by more agents, went right into film. He appeared in everything from Anchors Away with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly to one of the Thin Man movies, the Oscar-winning Gentleman's Agreement, the anti-war parable, The Boy with Green Hair, Stars in My Crown with Joel McRae, which is a good movie. And he even appeared in Brownface, unfortunately, playing the title role in Kim opposite Errol Flynn. Great novel, not that prejudiced. And the character is actually Irish, so it's not wrong for Dean to play him, but he was disguising himself as an Indian child to be a spy. So it's not as bad as it seems. He was actually playing a white person pretending to be Indian. So it, it fit in, in context. He also went back to Broadway for the drama Compulsion, appearing opposite Roddy McDowell, who became a lifelong friend. He enjoyed another peak, appearing opposite Catherine Hepburn in the TV version of Long Day's Journey into Night. Wow! Child actor, made it into adulthood, and then nothing. A lot of nondescript roles followed in the 60s and 70s. You look at his list, Mannix, The Streets of San Francisco, Heart to Heart. And he finally says, what the hell am I doing? He got a real estate license. He's moving his family, getting out of town for good to hell with this place. Then Harry Dean Stanton calls him up and says, no, wait, come to Paris, Texas. We're making a movie with Vim Vendors. And that led to a career resurgence that never stopped, including film roles in Blue Velvet, the original Dune, his Oscar-nominated turn in Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob, a major arc in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I forgot about that. He was great in that. And the biggest hit of his career, the quirky TV series Quantum Leap, which I have never watched. Neither have I. Scott Bakula. Yeah. Never seen it. He was pals with everyone from Dennis Hopper to Neil Young. In fact, an unproduced screenplay of Dean Stockwell's inspired Neil Young's entire classic album after the gold rush. Neil Young read it and said, oh, I want to write songs for the movie. So he wrote songs and three or four of those songs show up on the album. And he also inspired other tracks on the album. So that's kind of cool. He died at the age of 85. And in fact, at one point, a little detail, he dated choreographer and pop star Tony Basil. I say that because she has had the craziest career. Somebody should make a documentary about Tony Basil. She has been everywhere and done everything. She is a fascinating person. She should come on the show. Matt Baloney should come on the show. And you should tell us how to rate and review it. Yeah, well, you can subscribe to our show uh, in, in well, anywhere, really. iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher. But you know what? Here's the thing. You should do that because you never know when we might have to take a week off. Oh, Really? Like next week. Oh, you, did, you, oh, you forgot to tell us that I forgot to ask. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I was waiting this whole time. I'm like, oh, wait till we get to that part. And I'm going to have to oh, <laughs> tell them that we're taking a week off. Darn it. So I'm traveling yeah, this week for Thanksgiving. Well, well, oh, can I? So thanks. To, but it's Monday before Thanksgiving. You're traveling I'm not on Monday? Be, I'm traveling on Sunday, actually. Uh, really? For, uh, and then yes. you're heading to a place with no Wi-Fi. Actually, I am. Believe Where? it or not. Where? To Napa Valley, which you'd think has no Wi-Fi or, or should have in Napa Valley. They have no Wi-Fi. I know. I know. That's the weirdest thing. You get there and you're like, seriously, people, 
Fix there, your Wi-Fi. Is there no Starbucks or McDonald's in Napa Valley? Because they got Wi-Fi Oh, that there? there is. No, that there is. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So you're just taking off. And I've got I've got three weeks in December. To give them a little preview, unlike you, I'm traveling from December 21st through January 14th for a wedding in another country, in South Africa, speaking of uh, our friend Wilbur what? Smith. And so I'm going to be out of the country, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do anything for three weeks. I don't, I can't really plan access. I think that's unlikely. I will bring my laptop. I don't think my mic and my, you know, I will, I will try, but it's possible. We may have to have the longest break in the history of showbiz sandbox. What time is it right now? It is. Oh, I don't know. It is right now. That's not the issue. It is 11 o'clock PM. So it is literally like 14 hour. We can do it. No, the time difference isn't the problem so much as just taking care of my yeah, mom and the, traveling. Yeah, take it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think so. Uh, I'm just you know, not sure tra- I'll be able to carry my mic and other stuff, and uh, it, it may be untenable. So I'll try. We'll see. Unlike Sperling, okay. I'll try. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Here's the thing you're going to want to subscribe to us in any one of those podcast aggregators because you're going to want to know when the next show, uh, you know, is published produced what do i guess uploaded? up yeah up, yeah uh so you know what in any one of those podcast aggregators please do rate and review us in any one of them because uh those that allow it it does help us out with them when you do uh now links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode as well as all those ways to subscribe to us they can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com that is where you'll find ways to contact us Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. And when Michael Giltz isn't publishing stories for Parade Magazine- 101 Parade, Best Mysteries of All Time. Check it out. Yeah, you know what? You, you have a new website every week, Michael, with all of your wonderful work covering the entertainment business. What is it this week? This week it's TonyBasilTheMovie.com. Probably it's not. available, and so is actually TonyBasil.com for $250. So Tony, she's 78. She's great. She was born in Philadelphia. She is fascinating. She has been everywhere over the last 50 years. Seriously, somebody needs to make a movie about Tony Basil. Maybe it should be me. Well, you know what? While you're doing that, uh, if you can't find any of uh, Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, and you won't, <laughs> why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until two weeks from now. Oh. Play nice. <laughs>